0: Hi, and welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. This is Crystal O'Fall. I'm executive editor of Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. And today, Jim Hempel is going to be interviewing the great Lawrence Kasdan about the six-part Disney Plus series, Light and Magic. I know you've gotten used to, maybe over the last month, Jim's done a couple different interviews for us on the toolkit. He was helping out quite a bit during the busy Emmy season. And I'm extremely pleased uh, to let you know that Jim is now going to be a full-time member of, of our team. He's the the new features writer uh, for craft and special projects at IndieWire, and he's going to be a regular staple here on Toolkit. Um, you know, for a while it was me. I know you've gotten used to listening to Sarah Shackett, Um do interviews over the last six months, and now Jim's in the mix. So, between the three of us, uh, we're really going to be doing a lot more podcasts, probably three, four a month, pretty regularly, uh, after Kazden this week. Uh, We've got a bunch of interesting TV stuff coming up. We're going to talk to Mark Mylod uh, about Succession, uh, Jared Carmichael about um, his incredible Rothaniel special, which you haven't seen on HBO Max, you got to check it out. But I'm beyond thrilled That we have someone of Jim's filmmaking knowledge and enthusiasm joining Sarah and I. And um, I'm sure um, it's going to be to your benefit as well. So here's Jim and Lawrence.
1: Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really, really loved uh, Light and Magic. I thought as a movie buff, I just, it was pure heaven for me for six hours. I thought it was great. And I guess I wanted to start by asking you, just before we get into light and magic, I'm curious what your first exposure was to industrial light and magic and what they do when you were working, like when you were writing Empire Strikes Back for Lucas, were you close enough to the production that you were getting to observe what they were doing and what was your kind of initial response to that world? No, I, I wasn't that close.
2: I visited Empire once, um... that came before Raiders. Uh, I never visited Raiders. I was busy writing and uh, preparing body heat when it got to Raiders, you know. Um, But um, on Empire, I visited once. I saw him shoot that scene where uh, Luke is being rejuvenated in that tank, you know. And there's some pictures of me there. uh, And saw some of the ice tunnels which was amazing um but i had you know i was just i was around uh ilm for years without doing any work with them and um but i met some of those people and they were amazing and i didn't know them well but i feel i know them a little better now and um then i wound up working with them more extensively on a couple things so um and I was very much watched the process on uh, Solo, where Rob Breda, who now runs, you know, Lucasfilm Creative, um, I think that's her title, but uh, he's a lovely guy. He's now working with my son on Willow. So um, I've been around it, and then, but it wasn't until I started doing this that I really got the details.
1: And so what were the origins of this documentary? Was it your idea? Was it something ILM came to you? It was my idea. My
2: my wife and I had um, made a little documentary about a diner that we went to that was closing unexpectedly. And um, we were just about to start showing it when the pandemic hit and still sitting alone and it's on its shelf (laughs) I hope someday to get it out there. I don't care how, I just want people to see it. It's it's very nice. But I really enjoyed doing it. We directed it together. And um, I really loved the whole process. And particularly cutting it, where you get to, you know, you're making the story in the editing room. You're not fulfilling your preconceptions, what you wrote, you know, a year earlier. And the people were so unpredictable and charming to me and it had all the variety that i like and i'm interested in and i um that's why i said you know i'd like to do a history of visual effects when we start talking i started talking to people who did them and i met the uh imagined people i really liked them and they said well what do you got any ideas and then when i suggested that they said well we have a relationship with ilm i mean with lucasfilm and disney and disney plus and lucasfilm jumped to the idea and um but when i went in i said it's going to be about the people you know i want to know the technology it should be it'll all be there but the focus is entirely on the people because i found these people so extraordinarily gifted and unusual and eccentric and funny and charming um And I I knew I would find them that. They couldn't be that good at anything for 40 years and not be interesting, you know. And then there had been generations following the original people, you know. And the original people were somewhat famous in the circles of special effects. But there were a lot of people that I'd never heard of, you know, and people who had always taken a back seat. But they are just as important to the enterprise as anybody So I was able to interview people, and also we, um, Lucasfilm and uh, George was very generous about opening up the archives, and so there's a lot of stuff in the show that's never been seen before, and um, I wasn't so much focused on what had been seen before or not, but I was just blown away by what they have, and it's just so highly documented. And the upshot um, for the show is that you can see a guy who was barely 30 at the beginning. He's now my age. I'm talking to him now, but we have footage and stills from the very project that he's talking about. So you see him as like a 30-year-old and you see him now. And they've held up very beautifully, I think, most of the guys. So that was amazing to me. I love that. You get to see them and see the thing we're talking about. And the -the behind-the-scenes coverage was so enormous, so comprehensive that you can almost anything you're talking about you can find some footage of
1: it. Yeah, I mean the, the movie almost reminded me of those Michael Apted documentaries, The Seven Up, 14 Up, in the way that you saw the passage of time with these people. It was really great. And I yeah, I was amazed at how much archival footage there was and how like you say everything was documented. I mean, did George Lucas give you any idea of why he was recording all of that stuff all those years? Did he ever have a plan for it? Well, You know George, I've known for forty years, and it was always
2: he always had an eye to the future and posterity. Even on graffiti, he started. You know they had no money or anything, but he tried to document as best he could. On Empire, on uh, A New Hope, there's the least of any because it wasn't what it became. You know it was, but he was very cognizant even then that he wanted footage of the making of. After A uh, New Hope and it became, it on to Empire, then it became a whole department of the thing. I think he was always, to this day, they're recording everything you're doing from the story conferences through production and production and everything else. And I think it, so it's, it's a
1: part of George and that tradition was handed down to Lucasfilm when George gave up ownership. And it just seems to me like there must have been such a massive amount of archival footage. Where do you even begin on something like this? Do you start by sifting through that? Do you start with interviews and then go looking for footage that's going to match the interviews? What's the kind of order of operations? Well,
2: I wanted to follow the story from its origins. And the real origins are the fact that there was nothing like it and that George needed something like it and he needed it in a hurry. And it was a lot of chance, as with every story in life, there was a lot of luck and chance involved. And when Gary Kurtz and George went looking for someone to head up this brand new non-existent company, they got hooked up with John Dykstra, who had worked with Doug Trumbull. And everyone knew Doug Trumbull. Those guys knew Doug Trumbull. And Doug Trumbull said, you know, you should talk to Dykstra. Dykstra had worked for Trumbull. and." Then they said, when they connected with Dykstra and they felt that he got the whole thing, they said, you, Dykstra, go out and find the people to staff this. And Dykstra's background was so eccentric and all over the place. And he was a wild man and a genius. And, uh, you know, he's just the most charismatic of people. And he says, you know, he sat down on the floor with a the phone. There were no desks and um, started calling people he knew. And they didn't have to be in the movie business. You know, he, he was interested in uh, mechanics and artists and sculptors. And he knew the kind of people he needed to do this really brand new work. So a lot of times people, uh, you know, got a call from a friend and wound up working in Ireland island for 40 years. You know, and it's just chance. Just like when you meet your... Um, you know, your people to stay, your best friends in life, there's
1: a lot of chance. And when it works out, it's great. And you have this endless history. Yeah, I mean, watching the movie, it felt like a Lawrence Kasdan Fiction film in some ways, you know, it's reminding me of almost like the relationship between Kevin Klein and Danny Glover in Grand Canyon or something, which is a friendship that comes together by chance. And Mary McDonald has that line about, you know, you, this man maybe you might be his friend for the rest of your lives, you know. And this is kind of that in action. It's yes. it's really really cool. Um, and, you know, the interviews, the stories you get out of all these people are so great. And tell me a little bit about conducting the interviews. I mean, obviously, this was during the pandemic. Yeah, that changed everything. Um,
2: we just really got up and running at the moment that the pandemic was hitting. In fact, my other, the movie I made with my wife Meg, we were going to just have a big screening for it on the day the country and the world shut down. So then... We moved, I moved on to this thing, took a while for me to find what I wanted to do and to hook up with everybody. But the entire production was done during the pandemic and most amazing producing crew from Imagine and the people that they work with, freelancers, who they work with all the time because they make so many documentaries there. And um, and Justin Wilkes runs their documentary division and he's fantastic and he used to run the biggest doc, independent doc company in the country, and um, so this wonderful staff of people did so much work on this, and they did research. You know, I, I, the initial pitch before there was any research or staff or anything was, and uh, me talking to George was, "I want to get the history of these people, and we'll get the technology as it goes." And that included George, and there's some stuff in here about George that's never been seen before. And, you know, he's been very well covered, but uh, never in this quite in this context. And he turned out to be—I interviewed him for six hours, and I have known him all these years, but it was a wonderful conversation to have and so in each case i was asking the people to open up to me in a personal way and the technology naturally that's what they did you know so then technology would naturally follow and i was able to do the interviews from here at my home while they were in studios all over the country in new zealand with full you know well you know shot stuff where our team was there under COVID protocols, setting things up. But the technology of this is that you can see and hear and talk to people like as if they're in the next room. And all those interviews were shot remotely with me sitting here and them in very. And we get, found two wonderful women, cameramen,
1: camera people, to shoot it. And they made it look really great. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the conversations you had with the DPs, because I thought the interviews were beautifully photographed. And in fact, I would have had, had no idea you were doing them over Zoom if I didn't know that it was shot during the pandemic. And I, I tried to keep I didn't want my voice in the show. There
2: is one moment where I cracked and agreed to <laughs> let them use my voice. But um, so it was incumbent upon me to make them say the right things. And the people were fantastic about that. You know better than I, you know, you have to get them to set it up so that you don't have to be in the picture. And um, you did that brilliantly with me. I mean, I,
1: you, you, I hear you a lot, but it's perfectly its seamless. In terms of the way the technology comes out too, I thought it was fascinating hearing things like, how Jurassic Park single-handedly, I mean, basically the entire film industry changed because of the technological advances in that movie that you talk about. And I thought it was such a great way to tell that story through the personal story of Phil Tippett, where you've got this guy who basically, his life's work, he's watching vanish as an industry before his eyes. Right. But then emerges whole and strong
2: on the other side. You know, he's the quintessential ILM original. He is personally fascinating. He's brilliant. He doesn't try to be brilliant, he doesn't try to act brilliant. He's just an incredibly fascinating character. A lot of them are like that. They're eccentric geniuses who you feel like, gee, I'd love to talk to that guy. And then it turns out, or, or that woman, it turns out they're just, they've got great stories. And, um... They, when they saw where it was going, they got on board. No one said, oh, that's too personal, you know? And so I think there's a kind of intimacy
1: to the show. Definitely. And, you know, you were saying that, you know, there were things about George in here that haven't been seen or talked about. and, And that was one of the things that impressed me the most about the documentary is I'm, a George Lucas fanatic. I've been studying him since I was 6 years old and there was stuff in here that I hadn't seen and didn't know about. And I also think what you do really well in this documentary is, you know, we all know that George Lucas's impact has been huge, but I didn't I don't know that I ever thought about just how huge that we the way we watch movies now i mean the whole idea that phantom menace screened on maybe four digital screens and now that's the way we watch movies everywhere i mean it's just it was just amazing and for you what were what were your takeaways getting to the end of this i mean did you have a, the same reaction that the viewer has in terms of just being uh blown away by the impact this guy had yes and, and... And like you, you know, I thought I knew uh, everything about
2: George. But by the end, I was more impressed than ever about the impact that he had on everything. You said it, the way we watch movies, but it's also the way we cut them, the way we do the sound. He was so ambitious. And that was almost equal focus for him as the movies. You know, he wasn't like, oh, I'm... A movie producer, a director, and this will happen. By the way, he—that was on the same track, you know, a parallel track for him. How can we push this forward? How can—and people, you know, didn't—they could barely understand what he was talking about. And yet, over the course of this period, which you see in the show, it all came true. And that takes a visionary, and he is a visionary.
1: Yeah, and it takes an unbelievable force of will. I mean, you watch this archival footage and see him just pulling his hair out, trying to make these things happen. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it is fascinating yeah. to watch how over the the 40-year process of like all these things he envisioned in 1975, 76, when he was making Star Wars. And some of them are just now with Mandalorian becoming fully realized. Yes, it's amazing
2: how visionary he was. And as you said, the force of his will is so strong. And he was, um, you know, by all evidence from what I've learned, you know, he was strong and he was um, aggressively pushing for these things. But he was a benevolent presence in the sense that the people who worked for him felt they were working on something that was important. And it wasn't that he was haranguing them, he was saying, just think about it what can we do that's different just think about it well that to me is very inspiring and i thought the series could be inspiring to young people to children you say i want to make something because that's really all these people did they made things from the time they were 10 years old and then by a miraculous series of luck and events they wound up working at the place
1: for years and years. So it, it's a really. I love that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I found it really inspiring, and I thought to myself watching it, my 10 year old self would have thought this was the greatest documentary series in history. <laughs> I mean, it just was <laughs> such a great look at all this stuff. And, and it seems to me, you know, from Todd, ta- that, you know, a couple of times we've talked, it seems like discovering documentary filmmaking has really reinvigorated you. I mean, I, does this seem like this is basically going to be the next phase of your career is going more into documentary filmmaking.
2: Yeah. You know, you never know. I don't know how many phases
1: are left (laughs) for me.
2: Um, I know that I enjoy this so much and, you know, we're thinking about doing some, some other things, but I haven't settled on what it is because it, it's the same kind of commitment as making a movie. You know, it's just different. And, um, I'm I would I'm very open to doing it again because I love the process and I love the fact that when the people talk, I don't know what they're going to say. You know, for so long, I made them say stuff and, you know, they were doing the, the script and I saw on the diner um, doc and then on this, what they say without you telling them is so much more interesting and so fun and unexpected and surprising, you know?
1: So I'm very drawn to the form. Well, and also there's the kind of uh, cultural aspect of it too, where I got the impression the last time we talked that you felt the way the world has gone just in the last several years, fiction filmmaking wasn't necessarily, uh, you, you, were, you seemed like you were kind of even wondering if it had a purpose for you anymore. Yes, yeah, so that's certainly true. I, I believe that there's a strong
2: purpose for narrative film, but I'm not sure it's for me I want to see them. I still want to see them, but I don't know if I'd want to make them because the world is so insane, and I'm not sure what's, you know, the truth has become fungible, and I don't know who we're telling the story for, you know, and you can see that a lot of it has been sucked into what was hinted at by Empire and Jedi even New Hope which is we're going to make it more spectacular than ever but that was 40 years ago now there's been 40 years of that and where has it taken us you know and what you know and some of these people that make these movies are among the most talented directors in the world and sometimes I finish them and I think like what kept them interested in that for two years, you know, is it just business or you know, it that doesn't seem that much different from what they did before that and before that. And and these are really smart, talented people, so uh, that's where my confusion is a lot of the time is like, what are we doing it for and what drives you, you know? And uh, I mean, I think it, the perfect movie for me would be to find a story that I can relate to and I can enter. And if there's ways to make it spectacular and
1: mind-boggling, great. But the story for me has to come first. Well, I always wondered why you didn't do more kind of, maybe try your hand at a kind of big spectacle, special effects-driven movie. I mean, I guess you did with Dreamcatcher a little bit, but you you obviously have this facility as a writer for... Big crowd-pleasing movies. I mean, it's kind of it's. You've had this very interesting career to me, where you've written movies like Raiders or Empire or The Bodyguard, that are some of the biggest. I mean, those are you know clearly there's something about those movies that just huge huge numbers of people respond to. And then you also have, but it seems like then as a director, you kind of gravitate more towards these kind of again Grand Canyon, Accidental Tourist, Big Chill, Mumford, very kind of um, you know personal character-driven. Not that Empire and Bodyguard, and those are character-driven, but you know what what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, I understand. No, I think
2: that expresses a duality. You know, I'm interested in dualities all the time. And it certainly expresses something in me. You know, I'm very drawn to those things. The first movie I went to a theater for in two years, since I saw you, was um, Top Gun. And I had a ball. And that was just what I wanted to reintroduce me to movie theaters. And I'm so glad I saw it in a movie theater. And I felt that their exuberance about the subject and the filmmaking was just inspiring. And um, there's a part of me that that's that's fine for me. That's it, you know. And then the other half of it is this other thing and when they can combine them when there are moments uh, emotional moments in Top Gun you know Maverick uh, you just you're like in heaven because you're getting all the joy and the you know the excitement every other moment and when they can tie it to a personal relationship and I thought they handled uh, the Val Kilmer scene beautifully I was in tears and um it was it showed so much delicacy to do the scene that way and to have it fit in the plot that's a wonderful movie and a- that's why there will always be movie
1: theaters. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was great. And that movie was sort of a, in relation to this ILM documentary, it was interesting because it was kind of this perfect marriage of things that they did. You know, it obviously has digital effects, but also there's so much stuff in it that they did practically. And, you know, that was a whole other thing about your documentary that I found so interesting was that basically the golden age of these practical effects that guys like Tippett were responsible for, star wars poltergeist raiders et you know the the irony is that that kind of ended because the guy who was responsible for that stuff lucas was impatient with doing it that way like he wanted to do it a different way and kind of figure it out and so it was both like both the guy who create the guy who created the golden age also kind of killed the golden age and and i do have to say as a practical effects fan the most depressing moment in the entire documentary was there was a point where you kind of you, you were showing the model makers at work and stuff. And then there's a shot of just a bunch of drives, you know, in a room. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I think, you know, somebody in that Jean or someone or Kim expresses that very thing that the pleasure was being in a room with some and looking across the room and seeing, my God, he's the best model maker in the world. My God, look what they're doing over there. And some of that was lost, but I think it accounts for people like uh, Favreau and JJ when we did Force Awakens. We were trying to get as much physical effects in there as possible. And I I appreciate it every time in a movie, if I can tell, when it's a real thing, when it's a tangible object. And I I like the moment in the show where um, Doug Chang is talking about making the ship for Mandalorian, and, you know, they had talked about it many times, but people said, really, do we have to do that anymore? turns out that doing it anymore is really valuable, and it grounds everything else, because that's a tangible thing.
1: Yeah, I'm curious, just before I let you go, did you enjoy the experience of working with ILM and with huge effects on Dreamcatcher? What was that like? I enjoyed it because they were
2: great, but I it was not a good experience for me, as I talked about with you on the oral history for the Academy. Um, I think I was probably the wrong person to do it. And what I realize now after doing this show is that I didn't use ILM correctly. I should have handed much more of the responsibility over to them. They did all the effects. But I should have let them design it more than I did. I still was stuck in the old paradigm of I do everything, you know. I, I'll i tell you what it looks like. And that's not useful with them. With them, you should let them loose. The horsepower is so great. And I felt that Stephen understood that and Cameron understood that. And those are very powerful, controlling directors. But they knew that... ILM could give them something that they couldn't come up with themselves.
1: Well, I have to say, I mean, this documentary, I just feel like it's such a gift to filmmakers and movie fans, and you know I've been a fan of yours my whole life, and I think this is one of the best things you've ever done. So I really really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it. Well, Jim, thank you, it means a lot to me.